All right. Can you hear me? Welcome and good morning. If you want to have a seat, that'd be awesome. So great to see you all. Little Samuel, glad he joined us in church this morning. I think this is his first Sunday. That's been, no, he was here Christmas Eve. That's awesome. That's awesome. Great to see you all. Um, just uh, one thing before we get into our message this morning. Uh, next weekend, uh, we often do it this weekend, but uh, we bumped it one week this year, but our elders are going away on a prayer and planning retreat uh, next weekend. We head over to Barnabas Family Ministries on Keats Island, and uh, we pray and plan and try to listen to what God's saying about what's our next steps, Hillside. And uh, these have been awesome times. And I'm telling you, uh, A, some of us will be away at that weekend, and so don't miss our absence. We will be well-served. Marty Bennett, our former youth pastor, is going to be speaking next week. And uh, he's been preparing for a long time. Uh, Like he knew about this many, many months ago. So I'm just excited about what he's going to have from God for us next Sunday. And uh, we'll get a chance to listen online later. But um, appreciate your prayers. Like we're a body and uh, God uh, is sending uh, your leadership away for a time to to discern and pray, and we'd love to have your prayers for us. Would you do that for us? Is that, it's a small ask, I think. Um, and, and for you, this, this is a new year. How are you feeling about that? Older. <laughs> Older? How many of you remember when it was like 2000? Y2K? I mean... My sons were like one and two years old back then, but those of us, it just seems like yesterday, and now we're at like 2019, which means like 2020. I mean, for it's just crazy how time flies and what a gift time is. And uh, I wanted to wish you on behalf of the leadership here at Hillside, Happy New Year in the deepest, most blessed way I could wish you. Um, I've been sensing uh, God's uh, hope for us in this new year. And I thought just to, to get us started, we'd watch uh, a short film that reminds us of, God, of God's faithfulness. So let's watch the screen. So last year didn't turn out as you hoped. Things took a turn, a bump, a darkened sky. And at times it may have seemed there was no hope. But here's the good news. Our God is the God of fresh starts. Our God is the God of new beginnings. Our God brings new mercies, new compassions, not just once a year, not just when things are bad, but every single morning. This year has been tough. And for many of us, things will never be the same. 
but we are here, breathing, maybe smiling, or crying, or shouting, or laughing, but we are here, feeling, maybe fighting, or cheering, or seeking, or grieving, but we are here, living, and we are not alone, our God is here, our God is with us, and our God is the God of new creations. I know uh, that New Year's is just kind of a concept, right? It's just a day in the year where we turn the, the calendar forward a little bit. But uh, somehow I think we're drawn into hope during this time of year, are we not? Or we ought to be. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about a very funny way that God kind of reminded me of his promise for, for me and for my wife and for our family this last year when we were on our sabbatical. And we were at Kareth Retreat Center, as I told, we told some of you about, uh, in southern Alberta. And it was this intensive week-long uh, pastor-spouse retreat with three other pastor couples. And uh, while we were there, something kind of fun happened. Um, now, just to give you a backstory, uh, Angel and I, we traveled on the East Coast in the summer. And we had been told that Newfoundland was the, the capital for Canada for moose. And so... And I mean, we were given warnings everywhere by everyone. Oh, be careful on the road, be careful on the road. And so, and there's signs on the road everywhere. And, and there's like this many accidents have happened. They've got a tally yearly that they show on signs and things. And so it started as we're on the lookout for moose in fear for our lives, because apparently it's not good to hit one with a car, moved to disappointment that we didn't see moose. And I remember when we got on the ferry leaving Newfoundland, there was this sense of disappointment. And in fact, we, just backing up, we'd actually prayed and said, Lord, we don't want to see a moose on the front hood of our car, but we'd like to see a moose like in a nice picturesque setting so that we could get pictures. And we were actually praying this and, and nothing happens and that holiday ends. And, and then we're in Kareth Retreat Center where they tell us it's moose country, but they hadn't seen moose in months. And we're like, man, and, and uh, one day, we're traveling back from Banff. Angel and I had had a quick little side trip, and on our way back, she says, if we see a moose, we should celebrate with some romantic time. This is what she says. It's, she didn't say that exactly, but I'm just trying to edit it for the PG crowd. She was like, kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We should celebrate. We should mark that. And so I slow the car right down, and I'm... <laughs> I'm looking to the left, I'm looking to the right, I'm stopping at different times, and she's wanting to get home. And then she says, Derwin and, and, and his big mouth, we get back to the retreat center where we're rendezvousing with all the other couples, and over dinner, I tell them about our moose search and what she promised me, and they thought this was hilarious. And uh, so, so from there on in, when we go to bed that night, th somebody had found in the decorations of the building we're in <laughs> a moose, like a statue of a moose that's on our door, and at breakfast the next morning, there's a moose on the table. 
And, and this becomes, we're, we just got one last day with these guys, and all day long we're bumping into moose. At the end of the day, that night, there's photo, somebody had photocopied a picture of a moose, and it was on every pastor and their wives and their spouse's door. <laughs> and then our last morning, we... we <laughs> We, we really don't believe it when, when we get woken by a bam, bam, bum on the door, and Dwayne, who's this other pastor from Manitoba, who is just a kidder, he's like, guys, there's moose. And, and we go, yeah, like, right, right, Dwayne. Thanks for waking us up, at, you know, earlier than, than normal. And, 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 but we get up out of our beds, and we go out, and all the pastors and their spouses head out of their rooms, all in their PJs, <laughs> if you can imagine. And sure enough, on the front lawn, we saw this. And, and if you can imagine, there we are with our PJs and our phones taking pictures for the next like hour. We had like this pr- picturesque, perfectly safe viewpoint of these moose as they wandered about the property. It was unbelievable. And uh, the director, someone I'm going to talk about later, Mary, Mary uh, said to us, she says, isn't this just a sense of God's promise for you as couples? He wanted to send you off with with a blessing, with a sense of he's got good things in store for you. And I took, we took that, and we've kind of run to the bank with that promise that God, you know, I don't know what it would be for you, what image it would be, but now moose hold an entirely different image for me. <laughs> I, I'm entering this, this 2019 personally with a sense of promise. And I sense that God wanted you to enter this year with a sense of his promise as well. I love the scripture in Isaiah 43, which is always a good one for the new year. This is what the Lord says, forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. And I'd say this, whatever the, the wilderness or the wasteland in, is in your life right now, God wants to speak into that, his life, his hope, and his promise. May we be open to it. May we be looking for it. We ought to be people of hope. Even when, when stuff happens and life is hard, God is a God of hope and promise and so with all of that as a, uh, as a backdrop this morning, I, I thought I'd draw us toward an extraordinary invitation that Jesus makes to us in John 15, 4. We find this uh, little phrase in one of the most significant passages of Scripture. Uh, these, this cha- these chapters, John 14 to John chapter 16, and if you have a Bible, you might want to flip to John 15. But uh, we find this little phrase there. These chapters between John 14 and 16 are are what are called the upper room discourse, which is a fancy way of saying this is uh, the the conversation that took place on the night that Jesus was betrayed. On his last supper, where we get the, the, the last supper from, he had this conversation with his disciples. And so so you gotta think, if these were his kinda last words to his friends, that they would have mattered. They would have been important things. And these, these, these chapters are just dense with truth if you read them, and they're kind of dripping with promise. And from the disciples' perspective, you think about what they were going through. This would have been 
a huge night for them. It, it was a turning point. It would be a turning point in their relationship with their teacher, from, with their Lord. Their whole relationship with Jesus would change after the night. Jesus is still going to be in their lives, but, but the whole nature of their relationship would change. He, he promised to be with them, but it would be with them in a whole new way. These kind of three chapters, they pivot on this one verse, John 15, 4, this declaration, this invitation where Jesus says to his followers, abide in me as I abide in you. Um, that little verse, I'd say, gets at the heart of the matter. <laughs> like, like, it's actually really important what Jesus says because this is why Jesus came. We might think that Jesus mostly came to save us, to rescue us, to, to provide a way for forgiveness through the cross, that uh, he makes a way for our salvation through that, uh, pays our ransom for our sins, and he did that. But the question really is, why? Why, why did he do that? What did he save us for? This, this extraordinary invitation of Jesus in John 15, 4 gets at the why. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I've always been drawn to the word in that, in that scripture, abide. It's kind of an old word, but I, I really, really like it. And it's from the Greek word that, that can be translated to remain, can also mean to dwell, to stay, to, to wait, to, to, to be connected to. Uh, but I like this old word, abide. Because Jesus, for those who uh, are his disciples, find in Jesus their true home. And in a mysterious way, Jesus also finds his home in us. It's a pretty mind-blowing deal. This is no small thing. On, on, on one hand, it's the answer to the deepest questions that each of us ask about life, the universe, and everything. It's, it's the most fundamental question answered in that small thing. On the other hand, it's the way to avoid missing the point and find ourselves getting stuck and kind of mired in religion or an empty religious life, if you want to call it that. This happens. It's happened to me. I'm sure it's maybe happened to you. You might not know this, but, but Leo Tolstoy, uh, kind of best known as author of War and Peace, and Anna, thank you, I can't pronounce that word, Karenina, or something like that. Um, later in his life, Leo Tolstoy became a Christian, and listen to just his brief account of his testimony. He says, I've lived in the world 55 years, and for most of them, I was a nihilist. And nihilist just simply means someone who believes in the meaninglessness of life. He says, I believed in nothing. Five years ago, I came to believe in the doctrine of Christ, and my whole life underwent a sudden transformation. So Tolstoy, he, he actually becomes a Christian. He comes to Christ, and he was especially moved by, by Jesus' teaching, core teaching, we'd say, in the Sermon on the Mount. But after reading the Sermon on the Mount many, many times, he found himself entirely disheartened by it entirely frustrated by Jesus' teaching. He found himself, in, in a, just couldn't do it. Couldn't live up to the demands of, uh, of the demands of Christ. His wife would speak about these later years of his life, describing his life. She said, there is, no there is so little genuine warmth about him, his kindness does not come from his heart, but merely from his principles. I, I think Tolstoy would agree with his wife, he wrote in a letter to his friend about his inability to live up to the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, he says, it is true that I have not fulfilled one thousandth 
part of them, and I'm ashamed of this, but I failed to fulfill them, not because I did not wish to, but because I was unable to. You see, Tolstoy believed in Christ. He, he actually took the demands of, of Jesus very seriously, but, but he found that there was this massive gap in his life from what he believed and, 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 and his capacity to live out those beliefs, to live out the truth. And you get the sense for Tolstoy, maybe for his wife too, in her comment, which was telling, that it was exhausting for him. He was tired by that attempt. And it's a great burden. It's a great burden for him. It's a great burden for any of us who go down that road. And most of us have probably been there at some point. And, and, and you find yourself almost tempted to chuck the whole thing because of it. For me, I, I had a breakthrough, I would say, in this particular area because my first couple of, of, li- of, of years as a Christian were incredibly frustrating. I remember telling my friend, I'm trying so hard and I feel like such a failure in my Christian life. And then uh, one of my professors at Cape and Ray unpacked a scripture, Colossians 1.27. Some of you know it well. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's that last phrase that, that uh, has made all the difference for me. Our, our hope of ever living up to Christ, our, our, <laughs> to, to living up to his teachings is to not simply try harder. It's, it's, it's not by instilling into our, our January some extra you know, resolution power. Our, our, our hope of glory, our, our hope of life transformation, our, our hope, honestly, of becoming what God envisions you and I to become is Christ in you. That's that's why at the Last Supper, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. It's all well and good, but it brings us to kind of the crucial question this morning. Just how do we do that? How do we know and enjoy God? How do we learn to abide in Christ as he abides in us? What does Jesus imagine for us when he says to his disciples, abide in me and I will abide in you? I want to begin answering that question this morning. And I want to say today, before I do, that this message series has really been inspired by a book I've been reading by Gordon T. Smith. Gordon T. Smith is, uh, some of you would know, is a a professor at Regent. He's actually taught here at Hillside in years past. Um, And he's now president of Ambrose University, where my son is studying theology. He's a Gordon's a sharp guy, and uh, if, you lead, if you listen to him speak, my, my son says this about him, he's, he's one of those guys where every word kind of matters. It's like, it's intense. And the book I've been reading is called Evangelical, Sacramental, and Pentecostal, Why the Church Should Be All Three. And we'll, we'll grapple a little bit with his thinking in this message, and, and in two more messages in this series that we're calling Abiding in Jesus, how we know and love God. So we're gonna come back to those, those three loaded, very loaded words in our day. Evangelical, sacramental, and Pentecostal. And if you don't know what they mean, no worries. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll learn about them together. You know, theology for dummies. That's, what, that's my motto. Um, back to our question. How do we abide in Christ as he abides in us? A couple thoughts from this passage to, to help get us started this morning. And, and 
we'll look at one of the primary ways today that, that historically the church has sought to do this. First, Jesus explains that this abiding in himself by, by giving his disciples a, a picture or a metaphor that's meant to ignite our imaginations as to what this actually could look like. So we're going to read the, the first eight verses of John 15. So if you've if you got, got the word open, please flip open. It'll be on the screen, but we just please stand together if you're able for the reading of God's word. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." Let's just pray for a second. God, ignite these words in our hearts so that we might know what it means to connect with the living God more fully, more wholly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. Jesus uh, speaks of the the vine and the vine grower and, and of the vine or, or the, the branches being grafted into the vine. And he speaks of God being the gardener uh, and Jesus himself is the vine. This would be no small thing because actually those first hearers would know that Israel was always called the vine. And here Jesus was calling himself the vine. But the whole point of the metaphor is that, that life is found and fruit comes as the disciples are grafted into the vine. They're grafted into Jesus himself. Um, grafting actually is a, is a very special horticultural process. It's amazing, really. Uh, we bought uh, a couple years ago a plum tree from Costco. And what was special about this tree was, was it's actually got five different kinds of plums on it. We, we got our first fruits from it this year. But you can imagine, somewhere in some nursery, there's there's some master gardener who's carefully clipping branches from different trees and he's, he's reattaching them, he's joining them carefully in a grafting process into that tree. Amazingly enough, that, that, that branch still produces its own unique fruit, right? It's still kind of got its individual flavor, but it's receiving its very life and nutrition from, from the branch cut it off, and, and that branch will just be discarded and thrown away. And Jesus, I think, is giving us this, this amazing picture of the Christian life that our lives are grafted into, it, into his, that our lives are so interconnected with the life of Jesus that we can't be explained, we, we can't live, we can't uh, move forward except by this intimate connection and communion with Jesus. We quite literally 
draw our life from Christ. We're in Christ. Scripture says again and again and again. The other thing I want to mention is something that we might miss if we didn't look at the larger context of John 14, 15, and 16. Um, this extraordinary invitation that Jesus makes to us in, in John 15, 4, abide in me as I abide in you, is modeled to us by Jesus in how he relates to the Trinity and how he relates to the Father and, and the Holy Spirit. Um, it, it's funny, had an interesting conversation with my son Caleb over the holidays. And uh, Caleb, as I said, is studying theology right now. And uh, in his town, he leads a small group of students from his school. A bunch of guys get together once a week. And uh, be, Caleb's the only theology student. And so anytime there's tough questions, they ask him. It's kind of like being a pastor, son. I said, this is good practice for you. This is what it's like. They, people reserve their toughest questions for the pastor. Uh, and, and so, but he, he says, they asked some tough questions, dad, and put, put me on the spot. And he said, one of the questions they asked recently was, was, why are we here? Like, just why did God make us anyway? You know, what, what's that all about? And, and I, I had a proud father moment as I heard how Caleb answered it. He said, God made us because of the incredible love expressed in the Trinity between father Son and Spirit, and that kind of love by its very nature wants to be shared. It wants to be expressed. It wants to be given away. God made us so that we might participate in this loving fellowship that exists and has existed for all time and for all eternity among the Trinity. Caleb nailed it. That's exactly the kind of thing that we find when we read John 14 to 16. John 14's been said to be kind of the great Trinitarian chapter of the Bible. Jesus makes it really clear that he's distinct from the Father, but, but he goes on to say he's got this intimate connection with the Father. Jesus said, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And then he speaks of the Father who dwells in me. He, he says how, how I speak only what the Father speaks. And just as you're kind of making sense of this relationship that that Jesus has with the Father, he says, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to send you the Spirit. I'm not going to leave you orphaned. I'm going to not leave you alone. I'll send you the Spirit. We find more about him in, in John chapter 16. And so Jesus speaks about the unique fellowship or communion that, that exists within the Trinity, a, a communion where where to know, to know the one is to know the other two. You can't know the one without knowing the other two. And as Caleb said, this extraordinary relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit is marked by love. It's this amazing love that, that, that is what, what the Trinity is all about. And so the whole description of this ends in, in John 14 with the words that all Jesus has said and all Jesus has done has been so that the world would know that Jesus loves the Father. And then we come to John 15, 4. Abide in me as I will abide in you. And he uses the same language he's been using to describe the relationship that he has with the Father, with the Trinity. I think he wants, wants to help us understand what that kind of loving, abiding looks like. As Jesus lived by the word and, and will of the Father, so we're called to allow his word to live and abide in us and to live as those who do the Father's will. 
In other words, in some mysterious way, the phenomenal communion between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit sets the stage for the fellowship that we have with Jesus. And of course, the fellowship that we have with Jesus, our abiding in him, draws us into the life of the Father and the Spirit, which of course is a life of love. You follow that? Don't you want that? I want that. No wonder sinners were drawn to Jesus. I I think they could sense this invitation into this greater, bigger thing, and it was this life of the Godhead and this life of love. So how do we experience this abiding in Christ? This is where I've been helped in my thinking by Gordon's book. Uh, He says, to quote him, in the history of the church, there have been three defining and paradigmatic answers. Three answers that have in their own right each had a profound influence on the church and what it means to be the church. Three answers, the evangelical, the sacramental, and the Pentecostal. And for each case, the case can be made from the Gospel of John that this is indeed the answer to the question of how we can speak of mutually abiding in Christ. So what Smith has been making a case for is that there's been kind of three historic ways to relating to this question of how do we abide with Christ. But he also makes the case that we tend to, in our our own tribes, focus on maybe one of those ways when what we actually need is all three. And so in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at the sacramental approach, which is an emphasis on the incarnation and on the body and the blood uh, of of Christ. Uh, We're going to also then look at uh, the Pentecostal. We'll follow that up with the last Sunday of this month. But in a few minutes, in the few minutes that we have left, let's look at the evangelical answer to that question. Now, the evangelical answer to the question of how we get in on this mutual abiding in Jesus is actually quite simple. Christ abides on, in us through his word, primarily through the reading of scripture, the study of scripture, the hearing of, of scripture being preached, and scripture being meditated upon. The evangelical tradition would remind us that these words, I abide, as I abide in you, are quickly followed just a few verses later with, if my words abide in you. Now, Hillside, uh, we, we come from the evangelical tradition. It's actually in the name of our denomination, the Evangelical Missionary Church of Canada. It's a loaded mouthful of a denominational name, isn't it? The EMCC is what I like to call it. But we have this heritage by where, whereby one of the core ways that we abide in Christ is through the Word of God. And the theme of the Word, this, this theme of Jesus and his words run all through the whole Gospel of John, begins in that great opening, declaring the glory of the Word, this, this, this second person of the Trinity as the very Word of God, the one through whom all things were created. And then we find in, in John 13 that Jesus, he identifies himself as, as our teacher and as our Lord. And then Jesus, in, in chapter 8, he tells his disciples, he says that his disciples are those who continue in his word. In the next verse, he, he teaches us what his word is meant to do, that it's meant to liberate us. He says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. This is how uh, Gordon Smith describes a Christian in light of this centrality of the word. A disciple of Jesus is one who hears the teaching of Jesus, leans into it, and believes this teaching, and then obeys and lives the teaching. 
A disciple is drawn into the very life of Jesus by this intimate living of Jesus' teaching. He goes on to say, he says, it anticipates what is evident throughout the New Testament. The church is a teaching learning community. This teaching is in continuity with the ministry of Jesus as a teacher. And indeed, the teaching ministry of the church is the ministry of taking the words of Jesus and making them present in the preaching and teaching to the church of each generation. The church is fed, sustained by the word of God, read, taught, preached, heard, and lived. That's our calling. That's why here at Hillside, we honor God's word. We prioritize the word. We teach the word. Sunday after Sunday, we encourage you to study the word on your own. We hold the conviction that, that the word has life for us, that learning to abide in Jesus is learning to let God's word, his words abide in us. And then we'll, we'll grow in our capacity to abide as we actually get into his word. My, my wife, Angel, and I, we, we love the Psalms, and uh, uh, when we pray together as a family, uh, she often will pray one particular image from Psalm chapter 1, and uh, she prays it for, for me, my boys, our, our, our life together. Um, she prays that, that we'll be like this tree planted by streams of water. Anyone like that image? I really do. This tree that yields its fruit in season, who's whose leaf will never wither. It's a tree that's prospering. It's flourishing. And, and when I picture that, when, when she prays like that for our boys and for, for us and, and for myself, um, I find myself thinking, I want to be like that tree. Yes, I want to be like that tree. And, and to be honest, when I picture that, I, I, I want you to be like that tree. Prosperous strong and, and flourishing and, and receiving nutrition and, and growing up and, and becoming a shelter for others. All, all these images of, of blessing and strength, rootedness. The psalmist in Psalm 1 said, the person who's like that tree is one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Yeah, folks, if you want to be that kind of person, nourished, and alive and blessed, it's gonna mean a life that is regularly connecting with God's word. I know for some of you, you've long time, you've, you, you for maybe much of your life, you've cultivated this, this, you've cultivated this habit of, of being in the word, of reading the word. My, my mom who's here, uh, she's, every morning, she's been reading scripture, I think every morning of my life, I don't think she's ever failed at it. I mean, she's just disciplined. She reads the Bible. And so I'd say to those of you who are doing that, keep on going, keep on feeding, keep on being an example to the rest of us who struggle with this. And I know there's those of you who struggle with this. And I get that. And, and I'd, I'd say keep on pressing into this in your life. Ask Jesus for help in this. In fact, I, I think it's interesting to me that the Bible, the Word of God in Hebrews, is, we're told that it's living and active, it's alive, which means, by the way, that when we approach it, we don't treat it like a toolbox, that we're bringing out tools for, for various life troubles. But it's one of the primary ways that God mediates his presence to us. It might feel a little bit like Catch-22, actually. We're told that as we <laughs> abide in Jesus, 
We abide in Jesus through his word, abide in his word, but as we abide in his word, we're abiding in Jesus. I'd like to say this, though. Abiding in Jesus is, is how the Bible comes alive to us. It's never meant to be just words on a page to us. It's, it's not just a call of duty. This is meant to be bread for your journey, like you take a lunch to work, nourishment for along the way. And as we kind of open up our hearts and our, our lives to God, open to hearing him speak through his word, it can become like a burning bush for you. On fire, it's just pages, but the, the words are aflame. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Abiding in Jesus through the word means actually engaging in the word for ourselves. We have been given this primary document, a way of engaging with God, and, and we're gonna keep on challenging each other here at Hillside to engage and, and get into God's word. Now, just some practical thoughts to kind of wrap up our, our morning abiding in Jesus through his word, depending on whatever season you're in, can look different. It'll look different for, for parents with young children. For me in, in, in this season, I'm making good use of, of phone plans, you know, like, like version or Bible Gateway. They have great plans that you can actually help encourage you. You can set reminders on your phone to actually read those things, and you can choose a plan that's like a year long where you maybe read through the entire Bible, Some of you, that'd be a great goal for you this year is to read the entire book beginning to end. But maybe for you, it's like you're choosing a three-day plan or or, or, or a themed plan that takes you to different scriptures. There's just so many ways of engaging scripture through Bible plans these days that I'd encourage you to try that out if you haven't already, and you can easily do it with with one of those Bible apps. Um, That said, I'd also encourage you to have your own physical Bible. This is what a physical Bible looks like, everybody. It's an actual, this is a book. Maybe we gotta back up a second. This is a book. A, a digital Bible is great because it's portable. And when I traveled uh, recently in Spain and other where, w- w- ways, uh, I didn't carry this along with me. But generally in my life, I find that I learn better with an actual physical copy that I can actually mark up and look at. And actually, the studies back that up. Studies suggest that you'll get more out of a physical version of the Bible than you will out of a digital copy on your tablet or your phone or your computer. And so I'd say get yourself one of these and actually do a radical thing. Bring it to church. Folks, bring it to church, right? Bring it here. Like, let's, let's open it up and, and, and be marking up our Bibles and, and underlining and those kind of things. Of course, there's uh, meditating on Scripture, which is such a great thing. Someone once said about reading scripture, when we study, it's like typing information into our brains. But when we meditate, it's like pressing the enter key. <laughs> you catch that? Like it's not meant to be just information transfer. It's actually meant to, to be thought on and, and, and meditated on. And for me, I've been, I've been growing in my desire to not just read quantities of scripture, I've read the entire Bible many times, but I'm finding that, that in this season of my life, I get more, way more out of spending more time on fewer verses. And so what I, what I do and I, what I've done in, in recent years is I've invested in the cheapest of cheap journals. I mean, this is, I think, $3 at a dollar store. Uh, and uh, I will read a psalm as kind of a core way that I engage scripture each day. 
And then I will find that in that psalm, there'll usually be one or two or three verses that stand out to me. And sometimes I'll just write out those three verses. And I find writing them out kind of helps me meditate on them. And then I'll just kind of go line by line. Is there something there that that I'm, I'm, I'm needing to apply or to chew on and reflect on. And, and I find it so rich. And so for you, maybe, again, it's, it's a, 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 I used to journal with my phone or journal uh, on the computer, but I find, again, a physical journal seems to be, we're, again, we're, we're physical beings. It's no surprise that that would be a way we engage with Scripture is through our bodies. Um, of course, there's the genius of memorizing Scripture When's the last time anybody memorized anything? Come on now. We have access on Google. Who needs to memorize anything now? Can I tell you? I'm just making this observation that the Holy Spirit seems to speak to me most through scriptures that I've actually memorized and learned. So I mean, you know, the 23rd Psalm is a Psalm I know by heart. And so when I'm lying in bed and the lights are off, and I'm feeling afraid, the Holy Spirit will bring the 23rd Psalm to my heart because I memorized it at some point. And I, I, I think uh, scripture memorization is like one of those dynamite uh, spiritual disciplines that can be a game changer for us. My friend Mary, who I was telling you about earlier, who directed our Kareth retreat, um, she, uh, this year, just take a look at the screen, she, she looked... She, she posted this this last week on Facebook. These pages on this wall are the pages that she's memorized this last year, these scriptures. She actually uh, writes a, a scripture out and then writes a prayer beneath it, and she's memorized those. And uh, she, said, she said just, I, I don't post this to boast. I just want to tell you, this has been the most life-transforming spiritual discipline I've ever taken on is memorizing scripture. And so for me personally, I've decided to lean into it. It's interesting. Um, One of the actors who played Jesus in one of these recent Jesus films, uh, he had to memorize all of of Jesus' words in the New Testament. And, And he said this, after doing this, whenever I faced a problem in my life, I found myself responding with the words of Jesus. That's not a bad thing. And responding with the wisdom of Jesus. How cool is that? This guy who's just an actor memorizing the words and finding his words are transformative of his life. I love it. I don't know how you're going to engage in the word, but I just say do it in every way you can. Find a way to connect with his word. But I want to actually just close with kind of one little warning, a warning Jesus gives us himself about his word. For those of you who love the Bible, the question I'd ask you, is it actually helping you to abide in Jesus? Is it actually pressing you into relationship with the living God? We can kind of study and miss the point. Jesus gave this warning to to those who who were kind of resistant to him. He said, you study, this is in John 5, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus was saying there's a way we can misuse the Bible. We ought to be aware of that. If it's not drawing us into intimacy with Jesus, we need to maybe repent of that. 
I, I think we're tempted as evangelicals, by the way, to call ourselves people of the book. And I actually think that's wrong. We're people of the person. We're people of the person. Pastor Bruxy Cavey put it this way, he says, we are not, or at least should not be as Christians, a bookish faith living out primarily by reading. This approach to spirituality favors the academically and economically privileged around the world and throughout history. Yes, he says, to those who've been given much, those who have Bibles and access to all that kind of thing, much is required. And so those of us who can read and can afford our own Bibles should make much of that privilege. But then Bruxy offers this blessing. While we read the Bible, may it always lead us to Jesus, the living, active, and authoritative word of God. Amen. Team, would you come on up? Would you just bow your heads for a moment and we'll pray. Lord Jesus, I, we want to thank you this morning for this incredible invitation that you make to us. It's truly extraordinary. Abide in me and I will abide in you. And uh, Jesus, uh, I think there'd be many here today who would say, sign me up, Jesus. I want that. I want to know what it's like to abide in you more. I, I, you know, Lord, uh, whatever I have to do, however I have to rearrange my life, whatever practices I need to adopt... I want to learn what it means to make my home in you, to dwell in you, to live my life rooted in you. So Jesus, uh, you amazingly say that when we do that, as we abide in you, as we somehow open our lives up to that abiding, you abide in us and you dwell in us. And, and how can that not be a game changer for us? The living God, the Son, living in and through us, drawing us into this life of love, the life of the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So God, this year, uh, Lord, we don't want to be Leo, <laughs> Mr. Tolstoy, <laughs> mired in religion, maybe even, even reading the book, trying to get the answers, trying to pass the test. God, we want to be those who, who, who come to your word and feed and live and, and are nourished and, and drawn into this living, abiding with you. Lord, this, this life that is truly life, this abundant life, this good gift that you have for us. So grant us grace, Lord, we pray, more than anything, to taste more of that this year. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's, that could be our prayer for 2019, goodness, right there. If God just did that, uh, it would uh, blow our worlds and the worlds of those around us. That's the, the cool thing about the love of the Trinity that we get to participate in is that it sends us out because that's just the nature of love, right? We get in on that and then we want to invite others. And that's just the, the most godlike thing. If you have ever in, had any inclination to share your faith, even as timid as it might be, to, to share the love of Jesus, to sell, tell someone that God loves them, that's God. That's who God is. God loves you this morning. May that be a firm foundation for you in 2019. God loves you. You are loved. Hallelujah. Amen. So now receive this Trinitarian blessing. 
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you. Amen.